Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stoa Nova Conversations, a somewhat monthly, somewhat show <laughs> uh, triggered initially by the pandemic uh, with my uh, friend Rob Coulter out of the University of Wyoming. Hi, Rob. Hi, everybody. Uh, glad to be here today. All right. So before we get to today's topic and guest, uh, I'd like to announce the next one. Uh, the next episode of the Stoa Nova Conversations will take place on Sunday, January 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And our guest will be Liz Gloin, uh, who will be talking about her book, The Ethics of the Family in Seneca. So we'll take a look at, at uh, the issue of family relationships, brothers, uh, <laughs> father and son, mother and son, et cetera, et cetera. If you'd like to register for that event, go to meetup.com and look for Stoanova. And if you wish to uh, watch past episodes of these conversations with Rob, go to Vimeo and search for the Stoanova channel. So today's topic is, um, well, today's guest is Eric Weiner, and the topic is his book, The Socrates Express. Eric is, the, uh, is an author of the New York Times bestseller, The Geography of Bliss and The Geography of Genius, as well as the critical acclaimed Man Seeks God. A former foreign correspondent for NPR, he has reported from more than three dozen countries. His work has appeared in the New Republic, the Atlantic, National Geographic, the Wall Street Journal, and the anthology Best American Travel Writing. He lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, with his wife and daughter, and apparently he likes to travel. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric. I, I used to like to travel. <laughs> I still like to travel. I just don't do much of it anymore. <laughs> Thank you very much, Massimo. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, speaking of uh, travel and the book, let, let us know how this idea came out to you and, and how, what, what you actually did uh, for the book. Well, uh, so I am a, a place person in that I really believe that who we are is shaped by where we are. Uh, and I'm, I'm really interested in the intersection of place and ideas. And I'd written about happiness and place and the geography of bliss and creative genius uh, and in place and spirituality in place. And it seems to me that there was a, a big hole, not only in what I'd written about, but in my life. And that was in a word, wisdom. Um, I felt like thanks to this uh, handy device here. I had no shortage of information and even knowledge in my life, but not much in the way of genuine wisdom. And uh, it seemed to me that philosophy um, is just this overlooked source of wisdom um, that it had, it had, as you well know, it has in many people's minds become associated with something, a difficult subject, uh, one that will not lead to a lucrative career. Uh, the comedian Steve Martin once said, he majored actually in philosophy as an undergrad. He said, if you major in any other subject, you know, geology or physics or psychology, you forget it the day you graduate. But if you major in philosophy, you've retained just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, <laughs> this is how many people see it. So I uh, tried in some small way to resurrect philosophy, as, as you well know, as it was originally conceived by the ancient Greeks as medicine for the soul, as therapeutic, as something that is actually helpful to help you get through every day um, during good times and, and during bad. So that, that's how it was born. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great, Eric. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, too, uh, is there something, was there an event that said to you, I'm going to write this book about philosophy and traveling around, uh, or, or was this just sort of a result of 
brainstorming or? I think it, it was a slow burn. It was, um, philosophy was always something I kept at arm's length. Like one day I'm really going to read Montaigne and I'm going to read Seneca. One day I'm going to do it. And um, I became a man of a certain age, I would say, <laughs> at which point I'm like, well, it's kind of now or never. Um, and I also, you know, I'll be honest, as a writer, I look to see, you know, um, how much is out there on the subject. And there's so much on philosophy and um, present company excluded in the case of Massimo, but a lot of it is dry, uh, inaccessible. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, um, lacks, you know, I try to, to have a humorous touch in my writing. I try to, to take, uh, uh, take my subject seriously, but not take myself seriously. It's like a, a self-deprecating approach. I try to be, uh, every man and every woman, every person in, in, in the book. And I felt like it was a subject that was ripe for what I call the funny, serious treatment. Now you you cover a lot of philosophers uh, in in the book, and it's it's, it's fascinating. It really is a fascinating travel, both in terms of you know physical locations, as you were saying, and in terms of sort of intellectual locations, so to speak. Of course, this show is called Star Nova, so we're going to focus mostly, although not necessarily only, on the stars. And in fact, sure enough, the first chapter in the book is about Marcus Aurelius and how to get out of bed. What was that all about? Right. So each chapter of the book is each chapter is a how to chapter. It is literally how to how to get out of bed like Marcus Aurelius, how to wonder like Socrates, um, how to fight like Gandhi, uh, how to be kind like Confucius, right up to how to die like Montaigne. So I've, it struck me that, um, you know, uh, Camus famously said that the only serious philosophical question is whether to commit suicide or not. Okay, that's step one. But step two, I think, <laughs> of serious philosophical questions is whether to get out of bed or not. And reading Meditations uh, by Marcus Aurelius, I, this one phrase kept popping up at me, which is when you have trouble getting out of bed, you know, it appears a few times, at least in the translation I was reading it. And I was like, wow, I mean, he was an emperor. I mean, he controlled like a quarter of the world's population at the time. And he had trouble getting out of the bed, just like out of bed, just like me. Um, and I decided to start with that very simple task as, as an example of how philosophy, and in this case, I suppose you can call it Stoic philosophy, but really it's Marcus philosophy, how to get out of bed. And, you know, his, his conclusion, as you know, is, um, is for other people, that sense of duty. Um, and uh, I think I, I have it right here. Um, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. And I like that because it's not as a, as a emperor or even as a philosopher or stoic, but, but as a human being. And if you think about it, that's what gets you out of bed. It's, it's you've got kids who need to be fed or dogs and cats who need to be fed or people at work who are counting on you and that sense of being part of a community and having the sense of duty. And that, that's what ultimately what gets Marcus out of bed. So which which um, uh, locations were are then, were sort of associated with Marcus, I guess? Um, Marcus was actually on a, uh, you, you know, I could have gone to Rome. That would have been obvious. <laughs> but I, yeah. Instead, I, I took a train uh, across the U.S. I should say there are many train journeys in this book. The train is the vehicle, so to speak, that takes me from one chapter to another. And trains, I think, lend themselves to contemplation in a way that airplanes or buses do not. Um, so I was taking a train clear across the U.S. from Washington, D.C. to Portland, Oregon, 
and uh, Marcus was my companion uh, on board Amtrak. Um, so in that in that chapter, it was a, a transcontinental journey um, with me and, and Marcus. And that's how I read Meditations was on the train. Um, you can read it uh, on, if you ask how long the book is, it's one transcontinental train journey long. <laughs> <laughs> well, after playing around with Marcus, um, you talk about Socrates in your chapter, How to Wonder by right. Socrates. Um, now, the Stoics, of course, sort of look to Socrates as their, um, as one of their sages, maybe, if there's such a thing as a sage, he's one right. of the candidates, and um, as sort of an intellectual ancestor and stuff like that. Um, what did you find most interesting about Socrates? And that, that sense of wonder is what really compelled me, that, that one line from, well, from Socrates in quotes, of course, Plato in Socrates, um, all philosophy begins with wonder. And I, I really love that phrase, and I love the word wonder. And in the book, I distinguish wonder and curiosity, that we often use them interchangeably. But I think wonder is bigger, more aspirational, um, more contemplative. Curiosity has that restless quality to it. I'm curious about this. No, and there's another shiny thing. I'm curious about that. And with wonder, you're just kind of sitting with these questions. Um, and um, this notion that we that Socrates had all the time in the world to interrogate his fellow citizens of Athens, to ask them lots of annoying questions, right? Uh, that he was annoying and he kept pestering them and pushing them. And to me, that just seemed like the right starting place. And uh, I can see, you know, he's the original gangster really of all of Hellenistic philosophy, certainly of, of that practical philosophy, because that wonderful line from Cicero about, um, about Socrates bringing philosophy down from the heavens and introducing it into people's homes. And to me, that's, you know, that simple act of wondering is, is how it all starts. And that's, that's what I focus on. Great. Did you want to go Massimo? Yeah, I actually have a, uh, the next, the next topic that I want to briefly cover is um, Toro, because uh, so that would be chapter four, I believe, of your of your book, and it seems like it's like what that's coming out of nowhere. But in fact, the American transcendentalists were in, influenced by the Stoics, uh, both Emerson and Toro, although in different different ways and, and to different extent. And so, now I take it you probably were not thinking about the Stoics when you wrote that chapter. Um, but what what was about Toro that that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll just say one thing. Overall, is there's a, a thread of Stoicism runs throughout philosophy, and you'd be hard pressed actually to find yeah. a philosophy or philosopher where there wasn't a Stoic thread or something that could be interpreted as a Stoic thread. So it's it's not much of a stretch. Um, and in the case of Thoreau, you know, I went up to Concord, Massachusetts, thinking, well, this is going to be a chapter will be how to how to live alone like Thoreau or how to live simply. Turns out, of course, as you may know, that Thoreau was 20 minutes from his mom's home cooking and went there <laughs> twice a week to get his laundry done. So he wasn't that alone. And he did live relatively simply. But, you know, it, it dawned on me that really it was about perception and how to see like Thoreau. And here... Um, there is overlap with Stoicism. Um, this, this notion of sort of cleansing your lens of perception so that you live in accord with nature and you perceive the sort of everyday beauty of the world. Um, you know, and, and his connection to the ancients. He read the Stoics and he 
Thoreau once said, Zeno the Stoic stood in precisely the same relation to the world that I do now. Um, so he was definitely aware of them and aware of his connection to them. And also this notion of philosophy as practical. So here's Thoreau writing, you know, 1840s roughly. Um, and he says, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. To be a philosopher, and this is, a, you know, this is a hundred, good 150 years ago, and already he thinks philosophy has gone too academic. Um, to be a philosopher, he, he writes, is not merely to have subtle thoughts, but so to love wisdom as to live according to its dictates. And that strikes me as a very uh, stoic idea. And there are other ways um, in which, you know, he was not only a stoic, he, he read Epicurus, he read the Bhagavad Gita, one of the first uh, translations of the Gita. And so he was pretty Catholic in his reading and his, and his approaches to philosophy, but Stoicism was, was part, was on the menu, definitely. Yeah, that, that in, interesting uh, distinction between sort of an academic philosopher, a professional, uh, you know, who writes very technical, usually very dry papers or books, usually read by a few dozen people in, you know, in the world, you know, that sort of right. stuff. Uh, that is, that is one thing. And, and, you know, honestly, as, as a, an academic philosopher, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, it's a profession and, um, you know, it's not meant to be something that it isn't really. It's, it's not that different from, from being a scientist. I've been, you know, my, my first half of my academic career was in biology and I was doing the same kind of stuff. I was writing very technical, very specialized papers that were read by very few people in, in the entire world, most of which had absolutely no practical application. And that's what you do. That's that's fine. But yes, you're absolutely right that it is unfortunate that uh, the in modern times, the word philosopher now refers only to that kind right. of approach as opposed to the art of living, which should be practiced by everyone. Uh, you know, right. somebody in Epictetus would refer to a philosopher as anybody who wants to practice the, the art of living. Right. I think words, we don't have a, a rich enough vocabulary. We have the word philosophy and philosopher, which covers everything from the academic writing about analytical philosophy read by three people. Uh, two of him disagree with him, of course. And, uh, right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, philosophy as, you know, something very practical, um, practiced by an ordinary person, who incorporates the teachings of, say, Stoicism into their life and, and has no intention to earn a PhD or to read academic books. And, and yet it's all called philosophy. So it's... Yeah. And in fact, a similar problem, I think, frankly, is with the word science and scientist. You know, it refers to, again, somebody who does a very technical, but highly specialized work. But then we don't have a word for somebody who is curious about a natural world and understanding how the world works, which is what scientists, you know, do yeah and i yeah. and i actually think that's it's a problem both for science and philosophy that walls get put up around the profession the the the, the academic discipline and the price of entry is um what five seven years for a phd a lot of sweat and blood you know and yep. <laughs> and also a jargon that you need uh to to speak scientifically or to speak philosophically and you can have a curiosity about the world of science, but not have the vocabulary to express it. Likewise, you can have a curiosity about the world of wisdom and not have this vocabulary. And unfortunately, you know, some, some philosophers and scientists will exclude you from the conversation because you don't have the vocabulary. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, I wanted to talk about your chapter on Epicurus a little bit. 
um, you know, Epicurus and, and his school were, of course, one of the main rivals in antiquity to the Stoics, right? And they, and they took themselves to be sort of uh, at odds with one another. Um, I wondered if you had anything you thought about that and connections you could make between them. Yeah, well, a few things. Well, one is, um, one thing the, the Epicureans and the Stoics have in common is they were both uh, are well known enough to be misunderstood today. You know, uh, everyone, when I, people keep using the word Epicurious for Epicurus, that they're confused the website for food. So, so that like, in other words, Epicurean and, and Stoic are words we use in everyday conversation, but not always correctly. So a Stoic to, as you know, people say to, you know, respond to something stoically means coldly and without emotion. And that's a misreading. And to be an Epicurean is to, to have enjoy gourmet food and to, have 12 types of olive oil in your kitchen. Um, and that was, you know, Epicurus was even more misunderstood because he really was the opposite. Um, I don't know about this whole feud between the Epicureans and the Stoics, which in the research of my book I discovered continues like 2,500 years later, they're like still going at it on websites. I'm like, oh yeah. Really? <laughs> you know? So here's my thought is that they're not as different as they pretend to be, that they, they both were aiming for contentment you know, and uh, what Epicurus called it ataraxia, being free of uh, disturbance. Um, I don't think the Stoics would necessarily disagree with that. It, it might, I think the main difference was their, their sphere that they operated in. And of course, the Stoics were inside the city gates of Athens and very much part of public life. And Epicurus was off in his garden doing God knows what behind those walls. And uh, it's still, you know, Stoic um, Stoicism today seems to appeal to people who are more have a more public face, you know, or, or politicians, or in the military, uh, or very much involved in the world. And Epicureans to this day are more withdrawn and like to build their own garden and hide, and not hide. That's wrong, but to live sort of separate from the world. And and to me, that's the main distinction: is are you part and parcel of the world or do you think there's value in, in removing yourself from the world for a while yeah i like your observation about the fact that we still have those words around but they they tend to be misunderstood or, or they mean right. something different from the original philosophy i mean you mentioned too of course epicureanism which is often referred to as the sex drugs and rock and roll of philosophy even though right. the epicureans were definitely not into that kind of stuff right. and the stoics often consider you know stiff upper lip and suppress your emotions which also was not actually what the stoics were after there's two more actually there's we have the word cynic today yeah. which also means something different from the ancient philosophy the ancient cynics were actually kind of close kins of, of the stoics and that they were certainly the, the, the proto hippies yes yeah the proto hippies were they were certainly <laughs> not cynical in the sense of the modern sense of the of the word and, and then the there's skeptics, skeptics. yeah yes. exactly and it, skeptics is actually skeptic is probably the one that come closer to the original meaning because the skeptics were uh, you know, epistemic moderates, so to speak. They, they, they kept saying, you know, look, hold on, hold to your opinions lightly because you're very likely going to be wrong. Uh, but, and right. modern stoic, modern, sorry, modern skeptics uh, often inspire themselves to uh, figures like either David Hume in the 18th century or more recently Carl Sagan uh, with his famous, uh, you know, extraordinary claims should be backed up by extraordinary evidence yeah. right so so in a strange way it's like the lingering popularity of some philosophical terms are worse than being forgotten entirely because <laughs> exactly 
Um, cynics, I mean, I think very few people outside of this group probably know about Diogenes and the cynics, and it's just a term that means you're cynical. I mean, that one just seems like they've totally, it has no, bears no resemblance to the original meaning. Um, right. And yeah, so words get in the way, um, but um, what I tried to do in the chapter on Epicurus is to, to look at what he really taught, um, how it was different, um, how he really was the philosopher of simplicity, uh, and pleasure and how pleasure is often viewed as we're very suspect of pleasure. Um, I mean, I think basically without getting too much into it after Epicurus died and, and the Catholic church became predominant in that part of the world, uh, they, they wrote, history is written by the victors and they wrote, they wrote off Epicurus as this, you know, sinner. And, uh, right. and so that's how we remember him. Yeah, no, you're right. In fact, one of, one of the reasons why uh, the Stoics have a better reputation throughout the Middle Ages than the Epicureans is precisely because of the Catholic Church, because the, the Epicureans were clearly, you know, Epicureans' ideas were clearly at odds with Catholicism, especially in terms of metaphysics, right? They, they were atomists, so they, they were, you know, things bumping into the void, that kind of stuff, while the Stoics thought of the world as an orderly place, you know, uh, uh, you know, regulated by the logos and that sort of stuff. But more importantly, because Epicurus was very strong about, you know, don't listen to the, the priests and the poets who tell you about the afterlife, that's a lot of baloney. Um, and uh, while it, and the Stoics, and by contrast, had these, uh, although they were also skeptical about, you know, after the afterlife, but they had uh, an insistence on duty and virtue and some of that sort of stuff that came that went well for the Catholic Church. And, so and to this day, there are there are still Epicureans today. Uh, it's a smaller community than the Stoics and people who are really believe in practicing the original form of Epicureanism. And I found one up in Napa, California, and I spoke with him and there are others. It's it, it is not as popular as, you know, new Stoicism, uh, but there is a new Epicureanism out there. And it, it's, um, yeah, it's it's worth resurrecting, I think. Uh, actually, I want to now go, go, go to uh, skip a little bit ahead in, in the book and yeah. jump to chapter nine, which is about Confucius. And it, again, this is another one of those things. It's like, well, what has that got to do with the Stoics? But it does, not because there was any direct influence, but because Confucianism, by at least by modern philosophers, is actually considered a type of virtue ethics. And Stoicism and Epicureanism were both kinds of virtue ethics, although it is very different in nature from, from the sort of Western variety. So what, what did you find interesting about, about Epicurean? Uh, sorry, so the, the, chap the chapter on Confucius is called How to Be Kind, like Confucius, um, because um, he had ultimately, I think, a very... Uh, benign view of human nature. Um, mm -hmm. And it's especially true of his uh, successor, Mencius, who writing a century later, you know, wrote this famous thought experiment about you're walking through a village and you find a child teetering in the edge of a well. And he said, your first instinct is to help that child not fall in. Now it's the question is whether you actually take action, but your instinct is to help. So unlike Thomas Hobbes or some others who took a darker view of humanity, Basically, Confucius thought we are we are good. Um, by the way, my my journey for for the Confucius chapter was not to China, but to New York City, where I rode the F train for a solid week, eight hours a day, um, from Jamaica to Coney Island and back, looking for acts of kindness on the ah. F train. Figuring that if, if you can see kindness on the F train, 
you can see it anywhere. And yes, for, uh, for the non-New Yorkers in the audience, uh, the F train is one of the the, the worst right. <laughs> the entire subway system in New York City, and that's saying something. Um, so I was looking for the small acts of kindness, and um, you know, it was a, it's a fairly brief chapter, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on virtue ethics by any means, but my conclusion is that the the sort of part of confucianism that put me off which is ritual conduct that confucius was very big on properly i l i proper ritual conduct that you must place your mat in a certain way and use your chopsticks in a certain way and big on ritual and all this as sort of i don't know this this always bugged me but it dawned on me reading the analects and riding the f train which is a great combination by the way that yeah. <laughs> um that the, the rituals are the containers that can hold our emotions, really. Um, and that's mm -hmm. why uh, during the best and worst of times of our lives, we uh, turn to emotion. Um, weddings, we'd, we'd be overwhelmed with emotion if we didn't have the rituals. Funerals, right. um, I, my mother-in-law recently passed away and we would be lost without um, the rabbis and others saying, okay, here, here's what you do. You just, you, you don't, you just do this. This is the way it's been done. And, and it, it relieves you of that burden and it gives space for your grief. And uh, I think Confucius through ritual found space for kindness and compassion that, you know, that it's like giving, you know, we need GoFundMe, you know, otherwise, like I want to donate to this cause. I don't know how to do it. A GoFundMe pops up and it provides the container for my generosity. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I have to admit, I don't know where and how that overlaps with stoic virtue ethics. Um, well, one way that, one way where they do overlap is actually in, in the conception of human nature. That is, uh, the stoics also thought that human nature is fundamentally pro-social. Uh, it's the, they, they thought that virtue is kind of innate in human beings, the elements of virtue, right? So they had this, this concept of uh, okeiosis, which is this um, idea of appropriating other people's concerns, that we should enlarge our circles of concerns gradually. But, right. and, but they say, you know, at birth, you're really concerned in, you know, instinctively, you're concerned about yourself first, you know, because you're an animal and, and so you wanna survive and, and, and thrive. And then immediately also instinctively, you tend to be concerned with the people that surround you, especially your caretakers. But then little by little, that kind of instinctive pro-sociality uh, develops, especially once you reach the age of reason and you start expanding it. So you start making friends and then you start considering other people who are not necessarily, you know, who are strangers, uh, perhaps right. as human beings, and therefore they should be treated in a, you know, in a certain way with, you know, respect and fairness because they are human beings. Yeah, that's so, a very Confucius idea because Confucius right. says it starts with the family and you should expand that circle from right. family outward. And to this day, when we talk about Confucius cultures of East Asia, you know, we're talking about cultures that think in terms of we than I, you okay. know, and that that um, the 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 the, the uh, success and the happiness of the community matters more than that of the individual. And so would you say, Rob or Massimo, that that's a stoic idea as well? That's I would say, uh, I would say there's an essential embeddedness in a social context that the, mm -hmm. that the Stoics and the Confucians have. I had the opportunity to teach some Confucius stuff um, mm -hmm. this semester in, in a first year, uh, a seminar for first year students. And that was something that, that the students and I noticed um, this embeddedness in a social con 
context is something that they both definitely share. And and I really like what you pointed out, Eric, is is it's much more we than me. Right. Um, right. And I, I think that is definitely something that those views. There are. is, however, one big difference uh, when I when I looked into Confucianism uh, for a book that I put put out earlier this year, actually an edited book called How to Live the Good Li a Good Life, uh, which is a sort of series of contributions by different hmm. others. One of whom is Brian Van Norden, who is a, a scholar. Oh, yeah, I, I know about his work. He's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, Brian is great. So, but one thing that I noticed that it was different is even though both Stoicism and Confucianism do have, you start essentially with the family. In fact, Seneca, as as I uh, as I said earlier at the beginning of the show, next uh, next month we're going to have Liz Glorin talking about Seneca and the family, and Seneca explicitly says the the family is where. Uh, morality starts. It's where your ethical development starts. It's because because most of us grew up in a family, and that's how you learn the the, the, the elements. However, one difference is that, at least my understanding from Brian of Confucianism, is that a Confucian thinks that they have a special allegiance to the family, to even right. to the point of you know sort of protecting family members even when they do something not necessarily, you know, uh, quite quite kosher. So right. And that can get them into trouble. And, and even after a family member dies, you owe an allegiance to that parent, especially to continue their wishes. Exactly. Um, I guess one universal point, I guess, in my approach that I think, Massimo, you and Rob uh, take it. To, when you look at different philosophies, you can t take two approaches. You can look at how they're different, like where the distinctions are, or you can look at the similarities. I guess you can do both. But I, I, I just found myself looking for the similarities. And as I looked at these different philosophies and philosophers, finding similarities or finding a similarity with Buddhism, uh, which came up with the Epicureans and to extent with the Stoics. And, and I got excited when I would see similarities. Um, I don't get, I just find it less interesting to carve them up and to say, this is how this is different from that. I just find it fascinating that, um, you know, the, the the Buddhism and Epicureanism has something in common, and was that because they both arrived at the same conclusion via different routes, or was there actually people going back and forth between India and Greece at the time? Um, I just find it more interesting to find commonalities among philosophies than to define where they're different. But that's... Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I, obviously, one wants to be historically and philosophically, I suppose, fair and recognize the differences. But I agree. I, I studied out years ago with a focus mostly on the differences. And then actually, uh, I, I become more and more fascinated by the commonalities between philosophies. So the ancient Stoics, for instance, just like the ancient uh, Epicureans or the skeptics, et cetera, would have said that their their approach was D1 and everybody else was wrong. Today, I would say, uh, you know, I embarked on the Stoic path because it works for me. And I think it is a right path, is one of the right paths to a good life. But there are many others. And you can be a Buddhist, a Confucian, and all that sort of stuff. And all of those paths are, in fact, pretty good if, if the goal is to become a better human being. Right. And you can, um, I think where philosophy has an advantage over, say, religion is that you can construct what I call an I Ikea philosophy, some, <laughs> some assembly required, you know, uh, where you could take uh, a little bit of stoicism and, you know, a little bit of Confucianism and you could construct, um, you know, you wouldn't want to have too many parts any more than you want in your Ikea lounge chair, because then right. it's going to collapse. But you, you could take a bit from one and a bit from another and 
um, you know, I don't think any, anyone would be uh, offended. I mean, there are places where they're going to just not fit. The pieces won't fit, but yeah. there are lots of places where they do fit. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And in fact, uh, I would even go as far as saying that pretty much every philosophy starts out as a combination of, of elements that are mm -hmm. combined in a particular way. That's certainly the way Stoicism started and also Buddhism. Buddhism was a, re a reaction against the, you know, the, the, the previous Hinduism and right. took parts, however, of it, it, it and then, and then right. you know, came up with- But then, with, the, then of course, it's presented as something entirely new. We've never correct. seen it before. <laughs> correct. And, and we yeah. know in the case of Stoicism, we know that Zeno, uh, the founder of Stoicism actually, uh, uh, you know, went to school with a number of different philosophers, including cynics, Megarians, uh, you know, went to the academy, and then he put bits and pieces together. Right. You're right, however, that your IKEA model is, is a good one because yes, but then you have to make sure that those pieces actually do fit together. And you might need to do a little bit of, a, of, of uh, adjustment. And that is in, in the case of Stoicism, that is what Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoa, did. He came okay. in and said, all right, certain things are going to work here, but other things we're going to get rid of. And, yeah. and so he kind of cleaned out. But, but I think every philosophy pretty much starts that yeah. way. Yeah. Before we keep going uh, with you know, Rob as, a, as, as the next question, I believe, but let me remind our audience that uh, if, the, if you have questions or shortcomings, you can- Yeah, I'd love to ask, answer any questions. And uh, you know, we, we'll pick it up that way. Uh, Rob, what, what's what's next? Yeah, well, so let's get to the meaty chapter, meaty ah. chapter, chapter 12, right, which uh, Massimo in our notes before this said it was about his favorite philosopher, Epictetus. I was of I course you disappointed. Say, I thought you were going to say Rob Coulter. That's what I was going to say, right? <laughs> right. I was disappointed by who he picked out of that chapter. <laughs> of course, um, <laughs> right. Um, so in this chapter, you talk about where we first met, you and I, Eric, and... Um, should I talk about should I should I tell that story briefly? Yeah, sure. All right. So so the way I know so um uh I actually I went to so I, I sort of immerse myself in these each one of these philosophies and I look for entries and um uh Massimo doesn't remember that I actually saw him up on a stage at Stoacon in New York. Um ah. and uh I sort of was dipping my toes in there and there was a little uh cheaply produced uh handout <laughs> sorry university budgets man yeah that's that, right. you know that from stoicon and there was a little cheaply even more cheaply produced ad in black and white saying you know come to stoic camp in wyoming and find bliss or something like that um those weren't the exact words the snowy range um i thought well this sounds really cool stoic camp i was intrigued uh, so I wrote to Rob out of the blue. I was up front, said I'm writing a book, but I'd like to attend. And he he opened it up to me. Uh, well, to me, he just let me in like everyone else. And he didn't treat me special or different. And he didn't he didn't uh, censor me. He wasn't looking over my shoulder as I took notes. And he was very generous that way. I took the train, of course, uh, as close as you can get to Laramie, which is Denver, <laughs> you take a bus. So I thought I thought from Washington, D.C. very deeply to Denver. Then I got on the bus and I stopped thinking. And uh, and uh, and I spent, you know, the week or so that we spent out there. And it was um, I think it just made for a really rich immersion in stoicism uh, more than if I'd gone to Rome and looked at the statue of Marcus in that museum and said, oh, there he's up on a horse. He looks great. You know, I didn't didn't need to do that. And um, and um, I thought I thought Rob was a terrific uh, teacher and conveyor of stoicism. And I, I just want to say it's always tricky when you write about someone um, that no one people don't always like how they come across on the page because it's interpreted through my lens. And 
Yeah, I, I was nervous, to be honest, as I always am. Is Rob never going to talk to me again or whatever? And <laughs> he wrote me a nice email, said, I read your book. I skipped ahead to chapter 12 and you did a good, he, he liked the way it was conveyed. And um, I felt this sigh of relief. Um, so anyway, that's that's how I immersed myself. And I chose Epictetus mainly because Rob chose Epictetus as our main uh, instructor, really. And um, and I'm not going to tell anyone here about Epictetus, probably anything they don't know. But it was the way I encountered him in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And I'm a city person. And it was not it was not comfortable, <laughs> <I'll> be honest. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I would just add to that. Yeah, Eric. Um, yeah, it, it's a weird thing to be a character in somebody else's book, um, I found. Um, and uh, yeah, I had, I didn't recall saying everything you put in my mouth. You but, did. Uh, I've got I've got it on paper. Well, but, <laughs> but, 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 but my comment is it all sounded like stuff I could have said. Okay. <laughs> right. So whether I said it, so I didn't say, oh, I never said that. I was okay. like, yeah, I could have said that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't keep a record of everything I say. That's maybe I should do more of that. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, as, as you point out in the chapter, right. One of the things that I like to, that I like about doing it in Wyoming is this idea of living in agreement with nature and, and, you know, Massimo has been out here as well. And I see there's a couple of uh, other Stoic Camp veterans joining us today. Mm -hmm. um, it is the middle of nowhere, and uh, we've got a lot of nature. And I, I don't recall if we had moose and, and stuff uh, on, on your... Well, we had snow in late May. We had that. Yeah. <laughs> that yep. threw me yeah. for a loop. Um, <laughs> I would say also the beauty of immersing oneself in Stoicism in that way is I was thinking of... Epictetus, you know, he he got booted out of Rome, right, by some bad dude emperor. You, you probably know who kicked him out of Rome. And he, yeah. Yes, and he ends up in uh, Nicopolis, right, in yeah. what's now Greece. And he's teaching and people are coming from all over to, to learn. And and the, that sense of community and, um, and just a group of us together from all walks of life. There were some grad students. There were, you know, we had this German guy from, it was a consultant from Germany, great guy. And, and we're all there for one purpose, which is not, you could say to study stoicism, but to, to try to be a little wiser when we leave. And um, there are not many opportunities to do that in the world today. You know, you, you go to university, you study this stuff, but you want to get a degree so you can graduate. And this was self-contained and we all had the same um, purpose, and we're following the same logos there. And um, I thought it was just wonderful. I, I hope that comes across. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I see that Stoic Dan wants to ask a question about chapter 12. So maybe we should let him jump in here. Stoic Dan. That's right. Go, Dan. Yeah, thank you. Um, when you were just talking about chapter 12 and Epictetus, and that's the chapter on coping, it occurred to me that before uh, before the pandemic, uh, people would not talk about philosophy or about stoicism as a way of coping uh, with things like a pandemic. And then in the pandemic, now it seems like months into it that many articles talk about resilience and coping, but they go right past the definition. Maybe they give an anecdote. There's really no understanding of the depth that we discuss it in philosophy. And so this is a question for Eric, as well as our teachers, Rob and Massimo today. 
how can we make this philosophy more engaging to the public, whether it's young adults, older adults, of course, a, a book with levity can do it, but what other technologies can we combine to make it more engaging to the public? Yeah, good question. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I wrote the book before the pandemic. It came out mid-pandemic. And, and a question that then came up is, which of these philosophies, philosophers can help us through these times? And Stoicism came up I mean, it was my go-to answer. I also had Gandhi and I had Montaigne in there, but, but really the Stoics. And, um, and so immediately that's good. Um, and I guess, I guess I would say that do people, you know, it's like if Stoicism is a, you know, a big feast, you know, some people are just going to nibble on the hors d'oeuvres and some people are going to dive into the main course. And I don't know if everyone has to dive deep into Chrysippus and, you know, Cleanthes and read it in the original Greek or, you know, I think that's not going to happen. And I think people take from it what they can and some people are going to go deeper and other people are just going to skim on the surface. And I think that's okay. Um, I don't know. What do yeah, you guys I think I agree. I mean, so there's two aspects, I think, to, to Dan's question, really. On the one hand, I agree with you, Eric, that no, people don't necessarily need to go as deep as, let's say, this kind of our show typically tends to go, uh, just in the same way in which, you know, you can be a Christian without being a theologian. I mean, you don't have to understand the most abstruse discussions in, in Christian theology in order to be a Christian. You just have to understand the basics and, and to be willing to practice Christianity as a way of life. Uh, the same goes with, you know, Buddhism. You don't have to have read a lot of ancient texts in order to be a Buddhist. In fact, most Buddhists, I, I assume, certainly most Christians haven't read, uh, you know, a lot of the Western literature. So the same goes for Stoicism or any other philosophy of life. I tend to consider religions just another type of philosophy of life anyway. So, um, so I think that's correct. On the other hand, uh, I do think that uh, more people could benefit certainly from knowing about stoicism, even in broad, in broad outline. And, you know, we're doing our, our part then. Uh, that's, that's why we have this show. Uh, the book that I just put out, the, a field guide to, to the happy life is in a sense, a homage to Epictetus, because I do think that Epictetus needs to be better known. Epictetus was actually a household name until the 19th century. You know, the, the, most of the founding fathers of, of, of the United States uh, actually had a copy of the Enchiridion in their, in their library. Um, George Washington brought him into, into, brought it into battle. So it, it was actually well known. Uh, it's only the, with the 20th century and the turn uh, really the, the, the uh, turn of philosophy toward a more analytical and more academic field that, that the ancients in general and Epictetus in particular kind of faded in, in the background. And, and here in the 21st century, I think we have a good opportunity to bring them back up. You also mentioned then, um, you know, the new generations, as it turns out with my friend and, and co-author uh, co uh, Greg Lopez, uh, and it, it, we're, we're getting together with the Stoic mom Meredith, some of you might might know, to work on a project for on, on, a, on a book for for uh, uh, kids about stoicism, because I do think that the next generation is the one that has, needs to be the target. Uh, you know, it's all fine and then if we write for each other and and we try to talk to you know forty something or fifty somethings or something like that, but it's the people you know they're the kids yeah. in the they're twelve or thirteen or fourteen who really are the next uh, 
generation. So, so Massimo, one quick thing is I was talking to a, a book club yesterday and one person asked an interesting question. He said, why are there no stoic schools um, where like the Montessori schools, maybe or other schools like that, you know, where you get a general education with extra dollops of stoicism. I thought that would be interesting. It's an excellent question. My, my take on it is there, there's multiple reasons. First of all, stoicism is not still as widespread as, you know, other philosophies like Buddhism, for instance, or, yeah. you know, or even Confucianism. Uh, so if you don't have the numbers, you're not going to have enough people that are a willing to get into that kind of enterprise and, and be people more importantly, people who actually want to send their kids there. But probably my guess is the most uh, serious obstacle to that sort of stuff is that, especially in the United States, these days there is so much emphasis on accreditation and and standardized uh, tests and things like that that it would be really difficult to get uh, something like a Stoic school going. That said, I think there is an exception. Somebody I've heard just started one in London, uh, very 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 recently, like months months ago. Mm. So there are exceptions, but I'm not surprised that the exception pops up in 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 Europe as opposed to the United States. Uh, who knows? I mean, it certainly is an interesting idea. Definitely an interesting idea. Okay. Uh, we have a, another question from Scott. So Scott, go ahead. Hey, Eric, I really enjoyed um, the geography of genius. I have not yet read Socrates Express, but I just in anticipation of getting it for Christmas and reading it soon. Excellent. Um, I would love to just hear your take on what do you think the impact uh, of geography was specifically on the Stoic school? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I think geography defined as the times, I think they were living, uh, Zeno was certainly living during a time of great upheaval and turbulence and uh, Athens was already in decline at that time as a great power. Gee, that sounds familiar. I wonder what other nation is in decline. Um, and so I think it became, it was a, a way of uh, making sense of a world that no longer made sense and asking the question of, well, what, what do we control? What do we not control? And if we don't control what we think we control, what can we do about the part we do control? And I think in the sense of geography being the political and cultural geography of the time that it's not a coincidence that stoicism was born then and not at the actual peak of Athenian power. Um, I think maybe the most useful philosophies are born out of hardship. And, and that was the case with stoicism, as I understand it. There are a couple more questions in the, in the um, chat. Maybe if people wanted to um, jump in, I think the first one is Elizabeth. Did you want to ask Eric something? You can relay it if you want. I can. Yeah, we can just write, read the, the, the Well, Elizabeth asked um, in the Montaigne chapter, right, the 50 quotations carved into the rafters, were they carved by Montaigne himself or by the museum creators, or I suppose, or by anything oh, else? No, they were carved by either him or someone he hired. Um, and there are 50 quotations from mainly the ancients, including Epictetus is up there. Um, and so that when he's in his tower and he's writing the essays, he looks up and everywhere he sees these little nuggets of wisdom, uh, including his own, what became his own motto, which is, what do I know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why he's often called a skeptic. But um, 
He read that Montaigne read this read the Stoics uh, closely and read Epicurus and uh, ultimately he definitely what I like admire about Montaigne is he did sort of find his own voice as he goes on in the essays and started to even though his motto is what do I know he ironically became more assured of that model as that motto as he went on. And speaking of Montaigne, since he's the, the last chapter and it, it, it deals with death, right? So, so what did you learn about that particular topic, which literally affects, will affect everyone here? Um, yes, even, even Rob. Uh, so, <laughs> even Rob, that's right. Um, so the Montaigne chapter is called How to Die Like Montaigne, because first of all, he's writing in the 1500s during a time of pandemic, not unlike our own only was bubonic plague. And so he escapes from Bordeaux where he was mayor and goes off in the countryside where he has this nice chateau and this nice tower. And he thinks about uh, and writes about death a lot. He has an early essay called that to philosophize uh, is to learn how to die. And he sort of comes back later and says, no, it's to philosophize is to learn how to live. So anyway, he's wrestling with the question of death a lot. And he ultimately comes to a very stoic conclusion. Um, and I'll read just a bit from that. Montaigne begins to approach death not as a catastrophe, but as something beautiful and inevitable, like an autumn leaf falling from a tree. This is my voice. The leaf doesn't worry about how to fall, nor should we. And now to quote Montaigne directly, if you do not know how to die, don't worry. Nature will tell you what to do on the spot, fully and adequately. She will do the job perfectly for you. Don't bother your head about it. Um, so I found something oddly reassuring about that. And definitely something stoic about that, about living in accord with nature and dying in accord with nature too. Um, and well, you can read more about it, but he has a, Montaigne has a near death experience essentially when he's thrown from a horse and that has a profound effect on him. And I think that's why he ultimately reached that sanguine conclusion that he did about death. Yeah, so that's obviously a big, uh, a big thing for the Stoics is thinking about death and 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 so on. But um, I wanted to kind of maybe ask a bigger picture question that might relate to this a little bit. But and it's kind of related to a question that came up in chat as well from Lucas. Um, so let's say somebody is becoming, as you put it, a man of a certain age and wants to start indulging in a life uh, a bit more reflectively and so on, how would you recommend somebody start with that? <sighs> Boy, that's a good question. Um, I would actually, before picking up a single book of any kind, sit down and write a list of questions that come from yourself simple questions about, you know, that things you, you want to know about, um, how to, could be how to get out of bed, could be, um, you know, metaphysical questions. Why is there something rather than nothing could be, how do I, how can I better deal with setbacks in life to really identify the questions that are central to you and then find the philosophers that might speak to those questions. Um, I think we tend to get it backwards and start to read philosophers and think, well, what questions do they raise? And then hope they overlap with your questions. Um, there's a, there is a, a danger of overthinking, definitely, and of overreading. 
Um, so one of the philosophers in my book, Schopenhauer, uh, who was extremely well read, um, warns in one of his essays about reading too much, sort of, he's sort of like an early warning about um, spending too much time online, saying basically, you need to put the books aside, because otherwise you can't tell what are your thoughts and what are the author's thoughts, and you need to have, recognize your own thoughts for what they are. And I thought that was quite profound and prescient about the world we live in. So um, I think it's important to start with your own questions mm. and to also, you know, be Catholic in your reading and not say, well, I'm not going to read from Buddhist texts because that's not philosophy, or I'm only going to stick to the early Hellenistic period and just no, not the late Hellenistic one. I mean, just like not narrowing yourself down and precluding yourself. It could be like Massimo has a background in biology. I'm sure that informs his stoicism and his stoicism informs his biology. And, you know, we live in such an age, an age of such specialization that, um, you know, thinking of these questions yourself and then looking for answers in unexpected places as well. Could be novels for that matter, yeah. I like that. Uh, I, I'm a little disappointed that your answer wasn't go to Wyoming Stoic Camp. Oh, of course, but... and go to Wyoming Stoic Camp would be <laughs> step one. That was a given. Step two is, yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I wish there were more things like that. You know, I wish yeah. there was an Epicurean camp and a cynical cynic camp and, uh, you know, and... Um, yeah, yeah a, cine, a cine camp would be very cheap to organize. It's you know everybody sleeps in the streets and you know. It's, yeah. it's, but you have to bring problem. bring bring your own barrel. Bring your own barrel. Byob. All right, that is pretty much the time that we have today. Oh, no. okay. uh, yeah, I I want to thank Eric Weiner uh, for for being with us today. He's the author thank of Pocketis Express. Yeah. And thanks, Rob, for our usual, the usual conversation, help with the conversation. Yep. Thanks, everybody. And uh, thanks so much, Eric, for joining us. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, and um, I see Lucas has a child running behind him. That's cool. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I wish everyone a happy time off and holidays. Um, uh, if you have a chance to read my book, I would be honored. Um, but read something. And thank you so much. I enjoyed this thoroughly. Sounds good. So just a reminder before we close that the next episode of the Stoanova Conversations with Rob and myself will take place on Sunday, January 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual slot. Uh, we will talk to Liz Gloin about her book, The Ethics of the Family in Seneca. Until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.